Welcome to Drupal Easy Podcast, episode number 232. Before we get to our two guests, let me real quick just mention that Drupal Easy has online workshops on Composer Basics for Drupal developers using DDEV, and of course, our 12-week flagship training program, Drupal Career Online. In this episode, I talk with Michael Schmid from Amazie about Lagoon. But first, Ted Bowman joins me to talk about the Project Update Bot, which is hard at work on Drupal.org, helping to upgrade modules to Drupal 9. Welcome back to the podcast, Ted. How are you? Doing good. Yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. So for those of you who do not recognize the voice, that is Ted Bowman, one of the Drupal Easy Podcast regulars. A um, Ted, remind everybody and me especially, um, I want to say that you're a member of Octo at Drupal, but I know it's not called Octo anymore. It's got some crazier name. <laughs> it's not too crazy. It's the Drupal Acceleration Team, I guess, if that's crazy. Drupal Acceleration. Yeah, wasn't it like Dart or something? Didn't you guys? No, no. Dat. Dat Drupal yeah. Acceleration Team. Excel- well, Acceleration has an R, so Dart is much cooler, I think. You might want to put that in the team slack. Wait, why would you take an R from a random point? Well, so you, so you can call it Dart instead of Dat. <laughs> no, we're Dat team. All right. Oh, that's like when you're using the last letter of the acronym. As yeah. Anyways, it's not, yeah. It's like, um, I know, okay, I don't know why this always comes up when you're on the podcast. I'm going to go right to sports, which is, not, everybody should know that's your strong suit. Yep. A few years ago when the New Orleans Saints football, American football, that's yep. the the oblong-shaped ball, Ted. Yep. Um, when they won the Super Bowl, and actually a couple, you know, yep. still to this day, one of their like sayings or fan slogans or whatever was, who dat? Yeah. Kind of like what you are ta- talking about with the Drupal Acceleration team. Because when I say dat, people don't know. So I guess that's an appropriate question. Anyway, why are you here, Ted? You are here because you have been single-handedly without any help from anybody else <laughs> in the community. Is that correct? That's just how everything happens in Drupal. Just one person does it and nobody helps them and it gets done. And that person's just in glory because they did something that wasn't built on anything and nobody helped them. Yeah. So for the next 12 seconds until I finish introducing you, we'll pretend like you did all the work and then you can correct me with all the people who actually helped you. Yeah. Um, You have been uh, working on the project update bot, which is this helpful you know, let's just call it a robot because yeah. in, in my imagination, that's exactly what it is. Sure. That has been crawling all of the Drupal.org contrib projects and creating patches to help get those projects ready for Drupal 9. Yep. Did I explain it? Like if I explained that to my mom, would that be technically correct? What I just said? Sure. If, you know, if she's familiar with patches and the issue queue and, you know, there's a yeah, lot of... She is. My dad is not though. My dad... Yeah, I'd have to really explain things to my dad. There's a lot of pre-assumed knowledge about the Drupal community, I guess, but and development in general. But yes, generally. Okay, so let's correct my first mistake. Uh, I, I, obviously, yeah. we don't have time to name everybody, but yeah. who, who are like the primary people that you've been working with on this? So this started on something that Gabor Hoitzi on my team was doing, and he was building um, a dashboard that we have on Acquia.com for showing the upgrade status of all contrib modules. Um, so the DA, Ryan, and um, Drum had helped him out. Um, Neil Drum had helped him out on that. Mixologic and Drum had helped him on that and creating a job that produces these. And in Florida Drupal Camp, I ran into Ofer, Offer, Offer Shawl. Um, from Palantir, and he had made this, him and I think uh, other people, but I think who now is working on it, Palantir, is him and Dan Montgomery have been working on this thing called Drupal Rector, which can automatically fix um, compatibility issues for Drupal 9, not all of them, but a lot of them, and a lot of the most common ones. 
a lot of the, the deprecations mainly is what we're talking about, right? Yes, yes. All, yeah, a lot, but not all the deprecations. By the way, if I was a mean person, I would make you repeat uh, Gabor's last name several times. <laughs> not going to make you do that, though. Yeah, if you're a really nice person, you'll edit it. So I, I said it right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah. All right, anyway, so... Um, but see, Gabor is kind of like Cher in the Drupal community. Is he's just, you know, he only he's so famous, he only needs to be known by one name. In anywho, um, yeah. So we, we, me and Ofer started to talk about the possibility of like, well, wouldn't it be great if we could produce patches for all of um, Drupal Nine Contrib and post them somewhere so that people could access them. Um, so it's kind of building on the Drupal Rector stuff. So we added to the job that runs weekly to um, to run upgrade status to also run. Actually, original was running just, I think, Drupal check. Now it's running upgrade status to produce patches um, made by Rector. And this is now running like across all contributed modules. Yeah, there's a, um, a query that um, Mixologic made to query all the projects. So uh, not every single project. I think maybe it has to have a Drupal 8 release, even if it's just a dev release. Um, it has to be something, I think that's still the, well, I know the bot filters out ones that aren't currently maintained or no further development. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, yeah. So you're kind of answering something I, I, I had jotted down here to ask you is like, what are the filter criteria? Does it matter? So it, from what you just said, it doesn't have to actually have a, a, a full release. It has to have a Drupal 8 release because you could have a Drupal 8 prod branch but never actually made a dev release okay so it has to have minimum a dev release you know can a, a drupal 8 so we're not yeah, you know yeah okay um is there's no threshold on like how many downloads it has or nope. or nope. okay um and then no threshold on like the last commit that was made or nope. anything like that no nope. so how many modules roughly are we talking about uh i think like ten thousand or something and it'll create, uh, I mean, best case scenario, it, it would create like 4,000 maybe, I don't know, patches, but they wouldn't all, um, they wouldn't fix everything. Some of them right. would would fix just a few. Um, and there will be some patches that aren't perfect, obviously, in there. Mm. Um, but a lot of the patches, God, I want to say like 3,000 or something like that, will only update the info.yaml file. So right now... Um, Rector itself or Drupal Rector doesn't update the info YAML files. So I added a little bit to look at, say, okay, does upgrade status say the only problem is the info file and there's no other deprecation problems? Right. And, and what you're talking about in the info.yaml file, we talked about this on a previous podcast, is a new core version requirement. Yeah. To say, like, it's it's compatible with 8 and 9, basically. There's a little extra code in there to say like, okay, did I remove? Um, so if it didn't remove, if if the if the um, if Drupal Rector didn't remove anything, but upgrade status says okay, you're compatible with Drupal nine, then we just add to say okay, it's up, it's compatible with all of eight and nine, which is probably not true. There's probably you know it's probably not compatible with eight zero, though a lot of them are. Um, but Drupal Rector didn't change anything. So we just say, okay, you said it was compatible with all of eight before. So we're going to say it's compatible with all of, all of eight and all of nine. Um, but if Drupal Rector removed like something that is a deprecation in eight, eight, we're going to say it's eight, eight and above and nine. Right. All right. So let's, let's talk about the mechanics of this a little bit only because we covered this I don't know, a few months ago on the podcast. Yeah. So I don't want to, I don't want to repeat. But the mechanics are basically there is a project update bot user account on Drupal.org mm -hmm. called project update bot, which by the way, Ted, it needs a better avatar. So <laughs> I don't know if I should, can open an issue for that. Yeah, we'll be getting, I guess we'll be getting into that, but there is in the infrastructure project now, there's a component called RectorBot, And I didn't, you know, I didn't think it to be used as for the avatar situation, but you know, it can be used for other problems you might have with the bot yeah i mean we're a creative community so we can yeah. come up with a better avatar than the than the silhouette yeah i think all right 
that being said, so what is this? So this update bot is basically the the developer facing part of yeah. this stuff. And basically, when it crawls your module or when whatever I don't know what verb you're using mm-hmm. internally, but when I'll use the word crawl for now, but when it crawls your module, mm-hmm. if it can create a patch, mm-hmm. it will actually open up a new issue. Mm-hmm. And it will introduce itself with some mm-hmm. instructions. Yeah. And it will supply the patch yes. as well. Yeah. So before we get into how project maintainers can can interact with the bot, mm-hmm. let's talk about briefly what is the information that the bot provides, you know, as part of that new issue other than the patch. Um, so first it links to the previous blog post, which I'm sure you'll have in the notes, but basically, you know, with the to avoid the long introduction of, you know, like the DA initiative or whatever, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and part of that is it says, you know, this bot is not, um, going to affect anybody's issue credits. So it's not on my account. I'm not going out and getting thousands of issue credits. Oh, that would be, that would have been smart. (laughs) Uh, yeah, that was one of the first things when we started talking about this is like, we're not, you know, even though it is super useful, we don't want to like um, say that, okay, one person is going to get all the credit for all of this. So it doesn't factor. The only reason it factors into the issue credits is if people want to. And I guess the default would be because the account posted it is that it would be credited unless you un- unless you uncheck it or whatever as a main The project update bot would get a commit credit. Yeah, just because you would, yeah, if you put the name in there. Um so it tells you how tells you basically that the bot will continue to post um, patches as it as basically if Drupal Rector gets new um, fixes. The other thing possibly would be if there's fixes to the bot itself. Um, hopefully that it won't be changing much. Um, but also if you have new if you're if you're actively developing and you're actively adding stuff that is deprecated, then it will you know update those. Right. Okay. So this is an important bit. So I want to, I want to, I want to, you know, make sure we, we, we talk about this. So the project update bot will only open a single issue for a given project. Uh, per branch. Oh, okay. Issue per branch. Okay. That, that I did not realize. So yeah. single issue per branch. So let's say that today the bot comes by to a project that you maintain. It finds a deprecation. It does its thing. It provides a patch. Yep. At that point, the maintainer can apply that patch. Yes. And they may or may not give credit to the project update bot. Yeah. Now, normally, if this if it was a real, I don't want to say real, but a, a, a issue created by a human as yep. opposed to the bot, the maintainer would generally say, thank you, committed, and in two weeks, that issue would be automatically closed. Yeah. So we a little we, different for this though. Yeah, we had sort of talked about what we should do. I think the overwhelming like concern we had is we want to make it super easy for people to opt out. Um, and so now the issue has to be left either active needs review or needs work, basically anything that's not closed or fixed or outdated or anything like that. So by staying open, what does that mean? Even after you've committed that patch, yeah. you leave it open, yeah. which is a little bit counterintuitive, yeah. I think, yeah. but regardless, yeah. what happens when you leave it open? Uh, well, next time the bot, uh, produces, well, it does a patch run, then it will look and see, okay, it keeps track of uh, the hash of the patches it posted before and say, okay, is this, did I produce the same exact patch? Um, if it does, it just skips your project. Um, if the issue is closed, um, then, or there's a tag also on the issue that says like, I think it's it's in the issue comment, but it's like yeah, it's project update bot D nine. Yeah, so if that is still there, then if that has been removed, then it skips your project because basic maybe you want to leave it open, but you want to start doing it by hand or something at this point. So basically, what you're saying is there's two ways for project maintainers to opt out: either closing the issue or removing that tag. Yeah, and either one. Well, and you could close it and reopen it. Or you could remove the tag and then add it back, and then next time the bot runs, it'll pick pick it up again. Um, for most projects, especially if they're not being developed 
there's no new commits on that branch, then it won't post another patch, obviously. Or if you have new commits, but you don't add any new deprecations. I guess it could post a new patch, especially because the, the patch might be different, even if there's no new de deprecations because of context of the patch. The line it, numbers. And yeah, it might not. The old patch might not apply. All right. So um, before we started recording, um, you sent me a... Um, a link for a sample issue, not even a sample issue, a real issue yep. um, uh, in the advanced email formatter module yep. um, that the bot came by and I guess created this issue. And I want to talk about a little bit of the information in the, in the text of the comment, because mm -hmm. I think it's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in addition to the patch, um, you know, information, it's, you know, automated patch generated by Drupal Rector. Please see the issue summary for more details. Um, talks about Drupal 9 compatibility, which is, this is, uh, I think this is a new feature since the last time we talked about this. In addition to creating the patch, um, the upgrade status module, which is now somehow part of this robot, mm -hmm. will let, you know, we'll, you know, we'll check to see if the module is now compatible with Drupal 9. And if so, yep. you get this message and a little, you know, a little celebration icon. Yep. Um, so that's, that's kind of cool. Um, and then the, the last bit of info, and this is kind of what I want to drill into a little bit is the debug mm -hmm. info mm -hmm. and it's got like the bot run. And then yep. the interesting part, I think is the patch was created using these packages and it gives yep. you a version of, um, uh, the PHP stand Drupal uh, project from Matt yep. Lawman, a uh, Drupal rector. And yep. I'm not a rector prefix stuff is, but it's just a version of, it's just another version of like, uh, rector has this pre, I guess it's, um, compiled version or whatever, a far version of Rector itself. So basically if, if you don't have that, then Rector itself might have a, uh, a, um, conflicting composer dependency with Drupal. Okay. So this is just to get around that. All right. So let's talk about Rector here for, and Rector's role in this. Mm -hmm. So because I've had offer on the, on the podcast, yep. um, in the past. And so, you know, the short version is Rector's this tool where, um, contributors can write basically, um, new, I'm not even sure what the, what the noun is, but new rules yep. that basically says, if this deprecation is found in the code, then replace it with this. Yep. And often it's not a simple search and replace. Sometimes it is in some yep. cases, but sometimes it can be a little bit, the logic is a little bit more complex to replace deprecated code. Yep. So that being said, there is ongoing work yep. in Drupal Rector to add more of these rules yep. to help replace more of the deprecations yeah so i don't know how often and i'm not really asking that question of you like how often are new rules added to rector i mean if you know shout it out i mean i, I don't i don't know i mean they're, they've been doing it every few weeks like right, so new, not so yeah so yeah. that's not it's almost irrelevant to what yeah. to where i'm going with this so what's interesting is is that the version of rector is given mm -hmm. and then so i'm assuming that you know so this the, the sample that we have here is from yesterday the project update bot, yep. um, you know, I'll put this yesterday and at the, which was uh, June 4th yep. and the version of Drupal Rector 0.5.5. Mm -hmm. So let's say a week from now, there's a new version of Rector. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it'd be a maintenance, uh, you know, so it's 0.5.6 mm -hmm. that has a new rule in it. Yes. So I guess it's safe to assume with that new rule, the next time the project update bot comes back to this advanced email formatter module, it could potentially, even if the developer applies this patch, yep. the bot could come by and say, hey, I found another deprecation and yep. there's a new patch. But wouldn't that conflict with what the upgrade status module is? So this is kind of where I'm confused. If it's if upgrade status is declaring that you're going yeah. to go for Drupal 9, mm -hmm. is that? Yeah. yeah, so for this one, it would really have to be that upgrade status has a fix for something. So, so right now upgrade status says, so yeah, I guess. So upgrade status is just, it's just looking, but it's not fixing where rector is looking and fixing. Yeah. 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 So potentially, I guess we could update the text to say, close it. If it says it's compatible, I don't think, I mean, for right now, it seems like it's not harmful to leave it open um, on the off chance that upgrade status like got something wrong. There's a bug in upgrade status and okay, it wasn't like picking up. 
because upgrade status stuff, stuff like check libraries and other twig deprecations or whatever. Sounds like you're giving the entire Drupal community the Ted Bowman guarantee right here. <laughs> <laughs> I was not involved with with upgrade status building. Gabor did that. It's great. But say but say there was a bug that affected like Twig, and obviously if it's a bug, by definition we don't know about it now. You know, mm -hmm. sure. Um, say there was well, something. The rest of us don't. You probably do. But whatever. <laughs> but say there was a bug in how it scanned Twig files, and it didn't pick up some deprecation, and then upgrade status the next version fixed that. Yeah. Then potentially. Uh, yeah, that's a bit of a mess, but <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a mess. Yeah, but that's—I mean—that's kind of the situation. Even if a human was using upgrade status, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's that's kind of what I was what I what I was getting at. So yeah. for the most part, I mean, obviously, we're only as good as the tools that we build. Yeah. But it sounds like if, as a project maintainer, maintainer, mm -hmm. if the Drupal—not the Drupal—if the project update bot comes by and you get the Drupal 9 compatibility message, mm -hmm. you can be fairly confident that in the future, on additional passes, even as Rector's updated, mm -hmm. you're still going to be compatible with Drupal 9. Yeah. And I think like if you're confident... It's not like, the Ted Bowman guarantee that we're all yeah. looking for, but it's, <laughs> it's pretty good. I guess if you're super confident in the upgrade status module and you just want to say, yeah, you know, it said I'm compatible. I'm good. I'm just going to fix this issue. I don't really care that the bot can come back by. I don't really then close the issue. It's fine. You know, as a little um, uh, side side note here, I actually started recording yesterday um, and I'm going to release this on, um, on you know, as, as screencasts, uh, the series of screencasts. Mm -hmm. um, I recorded the process to upgrade DrupalEasy.com to Drupal 9 mm -hmm. because there's a bunch of, you know, I'm using, you know, I'm basing it all on upgrade status module because mm -hmm. there's a bunch of stuff that when I run upgrade status on DrupalEasy.com, you know, this module needs to be updated. You know, I was using PHP 7.2, so I've got to bump up PHP and all this yeah. stuff. Um, so that alone is like a really, you know, that, it, it's a really good exercise to do just to, just to see what that process is like. Yeah. Taking a step back and looking at the big picture at what, you know, what you've been working on um, along with Ofer and, and Gabor and, and everybody else. Um, I mean, this is a really, this is a, I don't want to like understate it, but I, I don't want to overstate it either. Um, I mean, this is a really spot. big deal. This is like, this is, this is something the community has never had. Yeah, you know, you combine the fact that going from Drupal eight to Drupal nine is not the Herculean lift yeah. like it's been in the past. So yeah. you take that, which is great, mm -hmm. and then on top of that, you say, "Oh, by the way, we also built this automated tool, which is going to help you move your modules from eight to nine as well." I mean, this is these are two things the community has never had. Well, and one depends on the other. Like, if it wasn't. If you if it wasn't like a remove deprecations kind of thing, go to nine, then yeah, that's the, true. A bot like this would not be useful. I mean, you could it's still you could probably there was a module or the there was an upgrade upgrader module for Drupal seven to eight, but it yep. was module upgrader, yeah, kind of just I can't remember, but obviously it, it was it couldn't do as much. No, I mean it was helpful, but it, it wasn't in the issue queue creating patches that were ready for commit. Yeah. And I think also if it's like seven to eight, I think it made more, much more sense to like not, even if we could do it with a bot, there was so much change right? that it probably was a good time to like reassess your module and, you know, and that's why stuff took so long. Right. But now, I mean, there's such potentially little change that it's probably for most modules, it probably doesn't make sense to say, okay, I'm going to for Drupal 9, I would say for like 99% of modules, it doesn't make sense to be like, I'm going to refactor my module so, you know, so that Drupal 9 has a new shiny version that doesn't, you know, it's not, right, right. it's different from the Drupal 8 version. So do you, uh, you know, and by you, I guess I'm talking about the team, right? Yeah. Yeah. Are there statistics available that, um, as far as like how many um, or what percentage of project maintainers are actually committing these bot patches do we have any sort of metrics that as to not like not yet um i'd be interested in it but it's only been run once and i'm running it um a second time so i mean i think we only have like 
a hundred or something commits, which is not that many, but also like oh, the bot itself, the bot user account, the bot user account. Yeah, it says one hundred and fifty as of this morning. Yeah, so that actually jumped like one hundred fifty. That's probably underestimating it because if the maintainer doesn't credit the bot, yeah, then it's not going to show up here. So that's that's the minimum. If you take the message from on the the issue itself and just paste it in, then probably you're going to credit the bot. But, you know, some people probably don't do that or they might, you know, they might apply it with other patches or whatever. Some people are anti-robot and don't want to give the (laughs) robot credit. Yeah. So I think hopefully like as Drupal 9 comes out and, and there's a bunch of, I think the bot will really be, and this whole process will be most helpful to the sort of long tail of projects for a lot, for projects that have like probably small usage and or the maintainers are in and out yeah right and the, yeah. the maintainers might you know look at the project once every couple months and run a bunch of you know patches yeah. and... so i don't think it i mean this initiative i don't think is really like let's get the top 50 modules i think the top 50 modules i heard like only one maybe wasn't compatible with drupal 9 and that was getting worked on um so i don't think that's like the bots target, right? I mean, it would provide a patch to a top 50 module if it wasn't already fixed. Right. Right. Um, but I think the, the sort of sweet parts, especially like simpler modules, cause there's a lot of, I think it was like 3000 or so modules, which only need an info file update. Wow. Um, so those may be projects that people just obviously aren't touching. Right. Cause they, maybe they don't, maybe they already work perfectly. Yeah, they do some simple thing or whatever, and it works, and they're not adding a bunch of code, so they're not adding deprecate stuff that needs to be removed in deprecations, and maybe very, you know, maybe thirty sites use them or whatever. You said something a second ago. I wanted to circle back on. You said that you've only run the bot once. So, is there like a schedule where are you? Is a team like looking to run? bot weekly or how long does it take to like for the bot to go through all 8,000 or 10,000 projects or whatever? Like what's the, Oh, just a few hours. Um, well, so, well, so the five, it takes like five hours to create the patches and then it takes another, like, maybe actually, maybe it's like, I forget, maybe it was like seven or eight hours to post all the patches. Um, I, yeah, the idea was to do it weekly. We did it, um, a couple weeks ago and we didn't do it for a week but the idea uh i was um fixing there were a couple issues that were opened up and um i wanted to get the comment template better and kristen pole mm. helped with that um okay. and the idea was to like um make i saw a lot of people were commit or fixing the, the issues and i think you know i don't I think honestly, like if we had more time, we probably would have, it would have been nice to have some sort of way in the project to edit project and opt in and opt out or whatever. Sure. Sure. Or or like, why do we even need issues for this? Right. Like why, why not just go to a tab on your project and say, these are the latest rector fixes. And if you're a maintainer, you check that every once in a while or something or. Right. Okay. um, So I think the issue was kind of, we just used what we had, but obviously, like you said, a lot of people, it's a different flow for issues. Usually you fix it, you commit it and then you mark it as fixed. Um, but I, my opinion was I wanted to keep it as much as to as few issues as possible. And I wanted it to be, I wanted to err on the side of opting out being easy. Like we could say fixed, we could say won't fix or whatever. And that means it'd be closed. But I, my opinion was that any way the person closes it, it should not come back and post a patch. And I think for a vast majority of, of um, the projects, it wouldn't come back anyways because they're not being actively developed. So the code's not going to change. So a new yeah. patch isn't going to be any different than the old patch. So. so make it as easy as possible for a person to um, to opt out. So let me, let me, let me give you an edge case here. So what happens if someone does opt out, um, but then wants to get back in, they just reopen the issue, reopen the issue or re-add the tag both. Well, so you don't have to re you don't have to remove the tag. Um, just close the issue. Um, so yeah, if you close the issue and remove the tag, you gotta do both. 
Okay, so so bottom line is the the bot is only going to act on the project if the issue's open and yeah. the tag is there. Yeah, yeah. So I would rather default to like skipping projects than providing patches when somebody was trying to opt out. So you'd rather deal with angry maintainers who want to yeah. be part of it than <laughs> yeah. angry maintainers who don't want to don't be part want of to it. be. Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the I think that's the the side of angels right there. And I think, like, my opinion is that, and there's a lot of, like, possibilities for something like this in the future. Um, so uh, one possibility is, okay, every time we introduce a new deprecation to core, we should add a new, um, if, we, if possible, if it's something that's, you know, machine fixable, we should add a new rule to... Um, to Drupal rec. That's something I talked to offer about when he was on yeah. the podcast. It's like, yeah. what are the chances of in the future that, you know, um, you know, deprecations now need like a change record. Mm -hmm. Well, can we make it a, a hurdle in the future that for that commit to be made, it needs a change record and a rector rule. Yeah. And even if it's not a hurdle, like it still could be something that the community does. Sure. Right. But I think it's sort of, um, it starts to get more complex because you're like, okay, you don't necessarily want to patch up. You don't, you definitely don't want to patch every time a new minor release comes out because that minor release is going to be like, we support two miners at a time. So you don't want to remove all your deprecations and a, a certain project may be like, well, I know eight, six is not supported right now, but I also know that I have 50, you know, I have a bunch of people using it. 8.6. Right. So I don't right. want to remove the deprecations for 8.6 right now. Um, so I think in the, if we do something like that, it would be great to look into see if it's possible either through like if we're still using issues for some way to, for the person to tag like versions they want deprecations for or oh, yeah. I'm just saying just throwing that out there as a possibility. I think I mean right now it's sort of more clear like we're providing everything Drupal Rector can fix and eight, nine is out, you know, so eight, seven is, um, eight, seven is no longer so su technically supported, I guess. Yeah. Cause we're supporting eight, eight and eight, nine. So removing, so all the deprecations really now can be removed for the supported versions of Drupal eight. So how what what percentage of your time day to day is spent with this uh, with this bot? Right now, uh, maybe like a quarter of my time. It was a couple weeks of work, um, and a lot of it was getting the um, uh, getting update status to work on the job that um, that produces all the patches, and then um, now it was you know like tweaking. I mean, the the plan is. I mean, I think this is mo mostly useful, like right in the next couple months, probably. Sure. Um, and it's potentially not. There's not going to be a lot of new patches, I imagine. Like in the percentage of those ten thousand projects, most of them will be, "Hey, we reproduced a patch. We came around. Even if you left the issue open, we're not. You know, the same patch was produced, so we're not posting anything." Right. Okay. Um. So. I wanted to get the comment. I wanted to the the thing that we did. The why I didn't want to run it right away is we updated the comment to say like, "Hey, leaving the issue open will mean that the bot will come by again," and um, and adding a message about we did or did not update the info file. Um, and so one thing, if people use Rector Rector by themselves right now, Rector does not update the info file because Rector is only PHP deprecations. Right. So to tell them like, hey, we updated it because updates, you know, just I think the comment on the first run wasn't super, um, could have been better. So the second run, which means any new issues. And also there was a, yeah, there was a bug in the first um, thing that produced the patches that basically a lot of projects just got skipped because we hit an error with running. All right. Well, we'll put, I'll put some links in the show notes. I'll put the the blog post i'll put the bot user account so folks can see what you know what issues the bot has gotten credited on and i'll put the sample issue the sample well the advanced uh what was it advanced email format or what was that module yeah advanced email formatter module issue that we talked about that has the updated template 
um, in the show notes for people to see. So let's let's wrap this up, Ted. Mm-hmm. I assume feedback has been p- positive, mostly positive. Yeah, mostly positive. There was some issues with the like the um, the way closing issues work. What's been you know it, I, I think in you know with what's going on in the world lately, we need we need positive messages right now. Yeah. Um, so what's been the nicest thing that someone said about this bot that you've seen? People just appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's like accumulation of a long line of work uh, that is, you know, started like it runs on Drupal CI to produce the patches. So, you know, it starts with Drupal CI and the DA. Yeah. Is there anybody at the DA who was involved that you want to mention or anybody else that you should mention? And I'm asking that way, if you forget someone later on, we can tease you about it. So Gabor for upgrade status and other people and Matt Glamon for Drupal check, which I think uh, that sort of was built on and um, Rector Ofer and Dan Montgomery at, at Palantir and um, Aquia for giving me the time, obviously Palantir for giving them the time, the, the DA, Mixologic, Drum, and um, Tim. Um, and then I think, you know, the fact that Drupal, like everybody who's, who made Drupal eight to nine. Oh, that's, that's, that's too many people. Come on. Okay. But I'm just saying that every, <laughs> everybody who, who compu- uh, contributed to help it so that you could actually have something like Drupal Rector to, to make something compatible. Got it. Yeah. All right, Ted. Always yeah. good to have you on the podcast. Great to be on. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Bye. I am here with Michael Schmid, the CTO at Amazie. Hey, Michael, how are you? Hello, I'm very well. Thanks. Um, So we want to talk about Lagoon, which has kind of been, you know, in the community or the community's known about Lagoon for a while. And admittedly, I've never used it. I kind of know what Lagoon is, Um, but it seems like a good opportunity to have you on, who's, uh, you know, one of the primary um, leads on the Lagoon project to kind of educate us on what it is and and why we might want to use it. So Lagoon really comes i'm i'm a drupal developer myself like a couple of years ago i was in building drupal websites um with drupal 6 and 7 and one of the things i really felt at the time still being a drupal developer that i didn't feel empowered by the hosting solutions that we used at the time i always felt like I, as a developer, had to adapt to whatever the hosting company told me. Like I felt like the hosting company and their platform was always above me. They told me how to do things. And um, an engineer myself, I felt like it, it just I felt it in a cage. And so, and one of the really big problems that I always encountered is I never really trusted the system that when it ran on my local computer, that it will also run in production. And I took that feeling with me for a long, long time. And we tried in many different ways internally while I was still at the Macy Labs at the time um, to solve these problems. But we could never really find a really cool tool or way or provisioning system. And we tried many of them. It seems like that this has been something that has come to the forefront in the past three or four years, a lot more than it ever was. Yes. Right. This idea of being able to, to develop in an environment as close to what it's going to be served in production from. Correct. Yeah. It almost, before it always felt like this analogy that you maybe heard before, you just threw something over the fence, but you couldn't really see what was on the other side of the fence. And, and then a couple of years ago, containers came up, or Docker specifically. Containers exist since quite a longer time, but Docker finally made containers really usable for um, for all of us with making them really easy to install on different operating systems. And I don't remember when exactly, but I'm pretty sure the first time that I ran a container on my computer and I ran it the same time on the production servers, like. I had this light bulb moment of finally I found something that I can build um, a system 
that will behave the same on locally on my computer, the same way as in production. And from then on, I couldn't let go of this idea to have a system that empowers developers. Because the other thing I also realized now, I can give developers also the possibility to change the configurations of these containers and test them locally before anybody needs to show it to somebody else and things like that. Because that was the other thing is like, it was always very hard with these platforms that existed at the time to change anything of the behavior of the platform with like, if it's just a small redirect in Nginx or maybe a special configuration in Varnish or a MySQL change that I wanted to do. Nobody really offered me that. But then with the containers, I now have the possibility that I can try these things and also break them locally, fix them again, and then bring them to production. So without saying it, you've, you've pretty much like defined what my understanding of Lagoon is, right? It's, this, it's, it's the ability to define containers that you can use on your local, that then you then commit to a repository, send it off somewhere or to Lagoon, whatever, wherever that is, which we're going to kind of get there in a second. And then Lagoon will actually use those, those containers as defined the repository for the production environment as well. Correct. Yes. And that way, whatever you're doing on local is using the exact same configuration as production. Correct. And that's the main, main key that I'm, that really I'm trying to make people excited about because, and it's, and it's interesting to see how people believe that this is not possible. Like somebody told them that this was never going to be possible, that an engineer can write an Nginx config that will end up on the production site on a later stage. And, but we really prove that it is possible. And then as soon as you empower developers that they, they can learn how Nginx works, they can learn how PHP configs works. You just need to give them the right tools. And as soon as you give them the tools and the possibilities to test and also to fail, they will, they will be able to write um, really good configuration that is production grade um, and can run in production. Yes. All right. So let me, let's back up just for a second. So. What are um, what would be like a recommended skill set for a developer in order to feel comfortable using Lagoon? Because um, it sounds like they might, you know, you might need to know a little bit about how to configure a Docker container with Docker Compose. Do you need to be able to do all that stuff before you start with Lagoon, or, or how does that work? Uh, no, you don't need to. And that's one of the other things that we quite fast realized is that it can be quite overwhelming. Um, Kubernetes, maybe that we're going to talk about a bit later in itself, but also Lagoon. So one of the main things that we did from the very beginning is that we created example um, Drupal repositories for Drupal 7, for Drupal 8. Now there is one for Drupal 9 for other services. And also we focused a lot on these kickstart things. So you don't need to know anything about Lagoon, about containers, about Kubernetes or whatnot. These repositories are kind of like project templates, it sounds Correct. like. But yes. not for the not really so much for the Drupal application side of things, but for the container side of things. Specifically for Drupal. So we maintain standardized images that are specifically built for the needs of Drupal. Okay. So you can use them and they will have good Nginx configs that will be secure out of the box. For example, they don't allow any other PHP file to be executed than the index.php. They do not allow access to the file system, to the private file system. Like all these things, that knowledge that you need to run Drupal is already there. So you don't need to, to learn how to write Nginx or Drupal or Docker specific things. Um, you can use them, you can copy them to your local. It's a couple of files that you, either you copy a complete fresh Drupal repository that you can start from if you start a new site, or we have documentation that explains you step-by-step step which files, like the Docker Compose files, the Docker files, the .lagoon files, you need to copy into your existing repository to what we call lagoonize this <laughs> repository 
Um, but you really don't need to know. Like we try to make it as simple as possible with as many comments as possible that if you look at these YAML files, they explain you which step does what, in which situation you should enable them and disable them to really get um, Drupal developers, but any web developers of any skill level, the, a guided hand to walk them through and help them and and explain them that like you don't need to know anything from the beginning because I think that's the other problem that I really try to solve is that this overlord of hosting company that wait you've never written an Angelis config or you're not good enough for my hosting platform like that's <laughs> um, that's really something we try to prevent and work actively against. So what would be the first step? Is you know if I want to use Lagoon and get something going on my local is. Lagoon, like, is there like a command line tool I need to use? Like, what do I actually do to get started? Do I have to, what do I install? Like, how, what does that look like, those first two or three steps? Yes. So, in Lagoon as a whole project, we say we always use open source tooling if it already exists. So, um, for the local experience, you actually don't need to install Lagoon or you don't need to change, um, you don't need some special tooling that, uh, that, that the Lagoon maintainers built to, um, to install. Technically, we just depend on Docker um, that you can install on your Mac or in Windows or Linux. And we also need Docker Compose, uh, which is usually shipped with however you install Docker. Docker Compose is just an easier way to manage multiple containers at once, which a Drupal site will consist of multiple containers. So you need to install that and then you clone a Git repository um, that we have examples from. You run Docker Compose up, and um, the containers will locally be built the same way that they will build in production, and they will be started with the exact same configuration that they're also started. So if you just want to play around real fast and see how it goes, there is a Drupal example on the Amazi.io Git repository. And this is the simplest way to start. I was going to say, and, and really the only prerequisite there is Docker. Correct. There is one tool that we are highly suggesting and it's going to make your lives much easier. Um, and this one is called PickMe, which we are currently working on um, migrating over to Lando. And that's uh, one of the other problems with Docker um, the experience to use Docker locally, unfortunately, is not very great out of the box. So there is a couple of things that Docker for Mac or Docker for Windows or Docker for Linux doesn't solve you automatically. So that's, for example, like you don't have domain handling. You don't have nice SSH keys handling. You don't have nice certificate handling. So you can do all these things, but again, this would be stuff that you need to learn additionally and how they all work and stuff like that. So we built first, when we started Lagoon, we built Pygmy. Now we found a partner with Lando that does that much better, which basically takes all of these things again, does them for you. They start the correct containers that you have nice URLs, nice SSH keys, certificates. And this makes your experience much, much easier to use the Lagoon Docker images locally, it is technically not required at all, but it is going to be much easier. So if we talk about what exactly needs to be installed, it will be Docker and as of today, PickMe. And very, very soon, we can also use Lando for this. All right. Very good. Very good. Um, so one thing I did notice, that I, I didn't, I don't know if I knew about it at some point and just forgot, but um, Lagoon is, is, is it completely open source or mostly open source? It seems like it's completely open source. Yes. Everything that will, um, that your code will touch if you host with Lagoon, you will find in the Lagoon repository that is completely open source on GitHub. So that is um, every Docker image that we build, like all these these um, default Drupal Nginx images, we call them the base images because people use them as a base to build them, their Drupal on top of it. Um, all the configurations inside of them, so all Nginx, all MySQL, all PHP configuration, but also everything that Lagoon does. So the Lagoon UI, the billing system, the permission system, the authentication system, all of it 
is all in this uh, Lagoon Git repository in this completely open source. Anybody can see it, anybody can, can use it and can also tell us if they don't like something and send us pull requests. So is the idea behind making an open source, I'm just going to go on a limb and you can correct me here in a second. Um, it seems like it, that would make it a lot easier for other open source communities to leverage it, just like you're kind of leveraging it for Drupal. Um, you know, maybe like the WordPress or Typo community can can create images that work best for those CMSs. I would guess that's one reason. And is 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 the other reason? And and this is where this just might be a, a lack of knowledge on my part. It sounds like if I wanted to start a business offering hosting for Lagoon sites, like that's something that I can do based on the fact that it's all open source. Do I have that right? Yes, you could you could take Lagoon today and start the Drupal easy hosting tomorrow. Like this would be um would be totally possible with Lagoon. Um you have all the bits and pieces that you need to offer um your own hosting. Even the billing system. It's even in there as well. It will tell you what what you need to charge to each of your customers. And that's really that's what we believe how um, software, and at the end, Lagoon is nothing else than a couple of many lines of code um, that provides software, that provides a platform for um, developers to use, that the software piece itself of a company, so we as a Maze.io that maintain and offer hosting services, for us, the software, to be very honest, is just a really small part of what the services we're actually offering. and. Um, it's an important part because this is used every day and this does the scaling and all this stuff. But um, for us, it's so much more, the really important part is the teams behind, is the processes, is how we treat our customers. The fact that we have people all over the world, 24 hours, there's somebody always online that, that will help the customers. And that's so much more important, or that's what I really feel actually shapes whatever if Drupal Easy would do hosting hosting tomorrow, this shapes so much more your success, and it's not the actual code that your platform runs on. Yeah, you've you've definitely you're definitely talking about like the philosophy of it rather than the actual mechanics of it. Yes, and if we look at Lagoon, like if you actually look at a hosting stack, if we look at what is running later on, in and let's say you deploy a server or you deploy a Kubernetes somewhere. Everything else, starting from probably the networking environment, the Linux, the MySQL, the PHP, everything is going to be open source already. And then on top of it, Drupal itself is also going to be open source. So why should the platform itself, the little tiny piece that basically just connects a couple of other already existing open source tools together, why should that not be open source? And that was really the question that we asked ourselves um, a couple of years ago when we open sourced Lagoon. It's like, why should it not be open source? What is in there that makes, makes somehow something better than others. And we realized also for, for many feedbacks from developers that they really like to see what is actually happening. Like they also felt like I felt many years ago that they couldn't really see of what's happening. Like I've heard horror stories about developers saying, yeah, I've never seen the varnish configuration that runs my million dollar website because it is something that the hosting um, provider thinks it's their intellectual property or something. And then they deploy something and it breaks because they've never seen the configuration. They were never able to test it locally. And so that's that's all of that connected together that we really want to empower developers, but also understanding that the code itself is never actually the whole piece of an offering of a company. That's why we make it open source. Yeah, that's quite inspiring the way you say it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, since you're talking about hosting, let's talk about that a little bit. And we're going to quickly get into territory where I have more questions than, than answers. Um, on one of the, the, I think it might be the documentation page or maybe even uh, Lagoon on GitHub, it talks about Lagoon runs on OpenShift. So yes. what is OpenShift? So OpenShift is basically a Kubernetes distribution by Red Hat. 
So Kubernetes now exists since a couple of years. And at the beginning was very much focused or didn't have that much focus on high security and multi-tenancy. So that means that you can run multiple customers that do not trust each other on the same Kubernetes cluster. If you took Kubernetes out of the box a couple of years ago, every pod was able to talk with each other. Every user had full admin access. And Red Hat decided three years ago that they saw a huge potential in Kubernetes. They took Kubernetes and basically forked it. Um, and I'm using air quotes um, mm -hmm. because they definitely it was definitely forked, but they contributed a lot back. And they implemented all these high security things into um, into this Kubernetes or their Kubernetes, and they called it OpenShift. So OpenShift is 95% the same to Kubernetes, just an additional security layer on top or additional security features that are by default enabled. And in the meantime, the Kubernetes community in the last couple of years, they now implemented a lot of these features that OpenShift brought. Actually, Red Hat contributed a lot of these pieces back into the community's code. But because the Kubernetes is a much bigger community, and we know this from Drupal, this takes quite some time to get consensus and to get stuff done. So this took a bit longer. But today, the security features of Kubernetes and OpenShift are actually exactly the same. And you can do the same. OpenShift maybe has some better defaults than a regular Kubernetes cluster, but um, in terms of the capabilities of the system, it's pretty much on par of security. And that's actually also the reason that we are now switching to Kubernetes. From a, and again, I, I don't want to go too deep into this because this is not my wheelhouse at all. And I'm going to quickly put my foot in my mouth, I think. But if I wanted to start, which by the way, I have no interest in doing this, but if I wanted to start a hosting company, it sounds like I basically get a bunch of servers and I basically put OpenShift on them. And then um, once I have that, then I can kind of put Lagoon on top of that and you know, some magic hand waving, I'm ready to go. Is that kind of the idea? Pretty much, yeah. And the important piece that you can now also use Kubernetes. So um, with Lagoon version 2, which is going to come out in the next couple of weeks, and we will have full um, support also for Kubernetes. So basically what you need, you need a Kubernetes cluster running somewhere. This could be at AWS, this could be at Google, this can be in your own data center. Maybe you have a Raspberry Pi cluster somewhere running around that runs um, Kubernetes. You could... Um, and all you need to do is get Lagoon installed on this. We have documentation on how to get Lagoon running. And there you go. You need a Git repository, which has a couple of Lagoon YAML files in it. So Lagoon knows what this is. And it will start to deploy you your sites fully automated. Every time you push, every time you create a pull request, it will create you a new environment and you're ready to go. So I'm, I'm guessing that the fact that Lagoon is open source that this would also be attractive for agencies that kind of want to have their own internal hosting, as well as organizations. Like, you know, I'm thinking like big universities or, or big companies that, that have multiple sites, rather than paying a hosting company, they could just set up their own cluster, put Lagoon on it and, you know, host their sites there. I'm assuming that's kind of, you know, one of the ideas behind all this. That's totally one of the ideas. And that's actually one of the big projects that we're working on right now is exactly that, where the, the internal IT team or somebody within these huge organizations, is it now a university, a government, or an enterprise, and they already started using Kubernetes or OpenShift. doesn't matter in this matter. Um, they can, they already standardized on that. The problem is what they're struggling with is how do I deploy Drupal? Because Drupal can be quite picky on how can it run in the container environment. So using Lagoon, you can remove or you can all hand this all over to Lagoon because at the end, what Lagoon does, it just talks to, to a Kubernetes API and tells Kubernetes, create this container, request me this storage, do me that service, do this, create this crunch up, all that stuff. And um, and so it, we see this now being adapted more and more by, um, by internal teams that already have Kubernetes up and running, or they say, 
hey, we want to learn how this works. So we maybe deploy the first cluster for them and show them how it works. And then they're going to do their own thing in the future. And that's really the idea of Lagoon as the open source tool that you can either come to Amaze.io and say, hey, run me everything. I don't want to worry about Kubernetes version upgrades. I don't want to worry about security. Do all for me. Or you can go in and cherry pick and it can say, okay, I'm interested in running my own cluster because I need to, or because I already can, or there's security requirements or whatever it is. But I want you to help me um, if there's a problem, I want to call you. Um, so it's really like also a pick and choose, create your own hosting system um, with Lagoon. So if I wanted to host a client site on Amazi using Lagoon, um, I guess I guess what I really want to ask is like, where does the pricing start? Is this something that is makes sense for small organizations, or is there a certain size organization or certain size of, of or amount of traffic where it really starts to make sense to to use hosting like this? So for single site hosting. To be very honest, I don't think we are the right partner right now. And the reason for that is we are a small team. We have people all over the world, but if you compare ourselves to um, our other beloved uh, Drupal hosting providers out there, we're not the size yet. And we, ha we don't have all the self-service tooling yet that you would see from other companies. So our minimum starts at um, $100. Um, per site uh, per month. And this is quite a bit more expensive than um, if you compare it to others. Um, but that being said, that is really because we, as of right now, how the company is built, um, it's much better to uh, focus on customers that have minimum, let's say, 10 sites up to 500 to 1,000 sites. So that's more where we are working with. Um, but that has actually nothing to do with Lagoon itself or the technology. It's more how we as a team work or the type of services we offer. So we are more focused on really white glove support. For example, what that is that every of our customers has a personalized Slack channel that they can meet with our engineers and can ask questions at any time. Um, stuff like very that. Very high that we, touch, right? Yes, very high touch. And that's, but that's more a business decision that we took at Amazio. We really think this is what it's going to be. This might change in the future that we are able with all these. That's the other cool thing is that all these customers that we have, they all invest back into Lagoon. So every feature that we built for them, for these companies, gets open sourced automatically. And some of them is actually like self-service tooling. So we we have customers that want to basically resell um, the hosting into their departments and then their customers can create their own sites and onboard themselves. So all these features are going to come back into Lagoon that maybe in the future, we can onboard somebody without ever talking to any salesperson of AMAZ.io or any engineer. And then maybe we can reduce the price. We will see. And we are super open about that, like also in terms of how the AMAZ.io um, internal processes work. They're all open source as well. So um, it's really right now, it's more for, I would say, the mid middle-sized to bigger um, installations of Drupal. Understood, understood. And um, before we wrap up, I have one other question. I just, I just noticed that, you know, it's not a wrap-up question. I probably should have asked it earlier, <laughs> but I, I, I do want to get to it. Um, I think I know the answer, but maybe more for confirmation. Um, when using Lagoon, um, we're not, we're not um, stuck with, you know, only containers that are kind of Lagoon approved, right? We can, can we use our own you know, customized Docker images as containers? Um, was there a vetting process in order to get those up on production? Like, how does how does that work? Yes. So Lagoon, as the open source tool, doesn't care. Lagoon just expects a Docker file from you or a Docker or an already built Docker image that lives somewhere that Lagoon can tell Kubernetes, hey, run this and go with it. Um, so Lagoon wouldn't really care about this. 
From a hosting point of view as a Maze IO, yes, there is a vetting process. So we tell, for example, all our customers, they should use our base images that already have best practices in them. They can go in and they can change these base images if they want to. They can install, let's say, some of our customers need specific PHP modules that are by default not enabled. They can do that. If they want to bring a completely new um, container from scratch, Yes, there would be a process that you work with our system engineers, that they look at the code, they give you some feedback. Um, but so far, we always found a really good solution with customers if they want to run something more, I would say, a bit crazy. Maybe they want to run like a specific beta version of, let's say, PHP because they want to try out something, that they want to see what allows PHP 8 for them to do. Um, or they want to bring a service that is maybe not by default already inside Lagoon. Um, one example is we just recently had a customer that asked for Matomo. That's like a Google Analytics open source tooling. And we looked at it and we said, hey, yeah, it's actually quite easy to get this running. And so we made it possible and we had it up and running after a couple of days. So um, it's not super crazy also to come to us and ask for specific things um, to run in the containers. All right. Fantastic. Well, Michael, thank you very much for your time today. Much appreciated. This, I know a lot of times on the podcast, I'm, I interview people to scratch my own itches um, <laughs> and, and, and really understanding what Lagoon is, has been kind of on my list of, you know, I kind of know about, it, I kind of know what it is, but I don't, you know, I've never used it. So this was, uh, for me personally, this was super helpful and uh, hopefully I'm a good stand in for other people in the community who had a lot of the same questions. Cool. Yeah, and of course, if there are any more questions, like we we are super approachable. We have Slack channels that you can come. Unfortunately, we don't. There we we will be at DrupalCon or DrupalCon Global, so we're also there. But um, if you have any, if anybody is out there that wants to give it a try, wants to have a trial or a demo, or wants to see more, it's really for us. It's an open source tool, and we want to be as open as possible to show it to people and um, let them play with it, break it, have fun with it. So yeah, that's what it's for. Right. And so I'm going to put a bunch of links to like the Lagoon homepage and Lagoon on GitHub in the show notes. Um, other than uh, like, is there Lagoon social media or if people have a question, you mentioned a Slack channel, is that um, in the Drupal community Slack or is there a separate Slack workspace? There is a Lagoon Slack channel in the Drupal community. There is also a completely own, we actually use Rocket Chat because of the pricing issues a bit with Slack. Um but if you go to our website of amazing.io, you will see at the bottom, you will see the Slack channels or the Rocket Chat channels that you can access or just um, the Amazing.io Twitter account or my personal Twitter account, Etchnitzel. Um, hit us there and we're happy to help. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Michael. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Drupal Easy Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you're still looking for more content from Drupal Easy, we've recently published part two of our Upgrading DrupalEasy.com to Drupal 9. Now, this is a video series that is demonstrating every second of the work that we are doing to upgrade to DrupalEasy.com from Drupal 8.8.6 up to Drupal 8.9, and eventually to Drupal 9. So if you have a project like this to do in the future, check out these videos and you can see how we did it. Alrighty, thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of the Drupal Easy Podcast. See ya! <laughs>